Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Electricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you. To start off with, we're joined by our panel to discuss some of the stories in this morning's newspapers and review the past week. On one side is the former independent TD, former Social Democrats, and now hopefully still in Fianna Fáil, uh, the spokesperson on Brexit, Stephen Donnelly. Looking forward to your long ten weeks off, Stephen? I would love to have a long 10 weeks off, Ivan. Thank you very much and good morning. Uh, I'm looking forward to getting a few weeks off in August. Yes, I am. It's been a, it's been a busy, eventful uh, year. Alongside him, former Fine Gael Senator and TD for Dublin uh, South West, former Minister of State of the Department of Finance and now, in, of course, Dublin MEP in Brussels, Brian Hayes. I read in Phoenix, you're making a return to the doll. You're going to take over from Richard Bruton in Dublin Bay North. Is this true? So, so I see. I'm not sure their sources. They didn't say their sources were, but uh, totally untrue, all of us, but you, you have a great time that, that, well, that, 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 well. that means it's a certainty. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> also, it's a great pleasure to welcome a newbie to the panel, Dr. Karen Devine, who she, well, she's a lecturer in EU politics and international relations at DCU, so she knows all about politics at every level and has worked for several years, and we'll try not to hold this uh, against her, as research industry in London and working for the bankers in Dublin. How do you plead on that one, Karen? Well, I needed to feed myself and put a roof over my head so I was in a, just finishing up my PhD so I worked for Bank of Ireland doing a bit of forecasting and research for them and then Bank of Scotland Ireland before they folded so yeah That's, that's the excuse times. I used too I just <laughs> needed the money at the time Okay let's take a scan through the front pages of the S- Sunday papers a little bit light today I thought sign of silly season emerging um, They've done Kevin Doyle has done a major interview sit down interview with Leo Vradker or Taoiseach water refunds in weeks says Leo Taoiseach vows to ease looming property tax surge. Uh, more money. We can find more money for tax cuts and extra spending. Garda Chief, apparently at a sit-down meeting with Noreen O'Sullivan, should take on those who resist essential reform. Curious stuff, that. The Sunday Business Post, special investigation. It's about the revenue commissioners. Taxmen targets lawyers, dentists, accountants and swoop on professions. Apparently they got lots of money after going after the medical profession. Uh, they had various tax wheezes. Others are now in their crosshairs. The Sunday Times has a poll on the state of the parties. It shows uh, Fine Gael at 29, Fianna Fáil 1% above them on 30, Sinn Féin on 18 and not much change after that, but they go for their lead uh, it's just story Justin McCarthy has from that poll, voters divided over female role in the home apparently it's in the constitution that a woman's place is in the home so they said what about change this and apparently it was just 41% said they wanted to change it, 39% said they didn't uh, does it make any difference? We shall find out the Irish Mail on Sunday has an exclusive interview with Rory Cowan splitting from Brendan O'Carroll and Mrs Brown and all that stuff. Their lead story is Red Cross Chief is roasted by the HSE. Pay and bonuses a previous, I think it was a deaf charity, slammed. Now, uh, let's turn to our panel. Well, we've had um, a year or a little bit more as the doll goes into recess of new politics. 
Uh, I said at the time of its formation, this was the worst doll with a ragbag of independents and others who didn't understand the team game of politics. And it created the worst, the weakest government in the history of the state. It's, it's actually worse than the Citizens Assembly because they can actually agree on things. But it's been much, much worse than even I feared. Uh, the minimal amount of legislation output, uh, so many decisions, even things they, they actually want to do, like change judicial appointments, put back to September. Drink driving, a free vote. What's that about? Water, I will put that back till uh, September. Even something that Leo uh, pioneered in health and alcohol bill, still no sign uh, to bring it together. Stephen Donnelly, I, I just cannot see, and actually this is nothing to do with the players themselves, I just cannot see how minority governments can achieve anything because effectively what you're giving everybody is right say, ah, now here, no, you can't do that. And you know what the end outcome of that is? Nothing is done. I think we have to be careful in uh, this constant negative commentary on politics generally, right? So if you look at uh, public faith in institutions of any kind, they they fall and fall and fall. Now, they they have steadied. But it's amazing to listen. Anytime I turn on the radio or look at the television and there's a conversation like this, it is a media uh, commentator such as yourself, some of less political experience than you do, but basically uh, uh, criticising again and again and again, not a, not a particular party, but sort of the democratic system as it is now. The reality is the people decided the makeup of the TDs in there. And an awful lot of people said at the time, it will be impossible for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael or anyone else to form a government because sure politicians just don't know how to get on with each other. And what we need is we need a parliament that figures out how to make this work and does it. And Parliament did figure out how to make it work, and we're in the middle of it. Is it as easy as having a majority government? Of course it's not. Uh, It's the first time we've had anything like this in Ireland. It is a more difficult environment to be in. But we do need to be careful with the incessant negativity about politicians trying to do the job, given the political numbers that the people returned. That was the decision of the people, and our job is to try and make that work. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael entered a supply and confidence arrangement and obviously some independents went in with Fianna Gael to form a government. Um, there are problems with it, of course there are. Are things moving as quickly as one might like them to move? No, they're not. But at the same time, some of the really stupid stuff that has happened in the past, be it in the last Fianna Gael Labour government or I have no doubt in previous Fianna Fáil governments, uh, take Irish water, right? The debacle that was Irish water would not have got through in this doll. Because in this case, Fianna Fáil would have said, I'm sorry, but we're just, and, and Sinn Féin, I'm sure, would have said, sorry, we're not supporting this. And so um, but, but it's, Stephen, a, bit, it's see, a bit safer. But no, but sorry, well, there's a couple of points where, first of all, blaming the messenger is always wrong because it, it misses the point. But if you take something like Irish Porter, what you see under new politics is the inability to say no to anybody. Oh, yeah, we're going to have to refund the money. OK, there, there's going to be free water. There's going to be no meters. There's going to be... Like, in other words, every consensus that ultimately comes out is the weakest possible decision. So whether it's anything coming down the tracks, the Eighth Amendment, public sector pay, you're going to have a default position to say, oh, my God, we're not going to do anything that's unpopular. And I put it to you, there's a fundamental problem that... And and this is this is really brought to light, which what I think is a farcical situation. We'll just take Shane Ross and the drink driving thing. Now, 
I'm agnostic on the subject, but just say he's right about it, that if we want to reduce road fatalities, we must have an absolute ban on drink driving. That's a valid point of view. Mm -hmm. What you've now got is a free vote. This is not like an issue of abortion or religious concert. This is actually a matter of routine political business. And the thing is so feckless, so indecisive, that you have a free vote. And I'm saying to myself... The difference yeah, between a commentator and a minister. A minister has power to do things. It is emasculated ministers. Brian. Yeah, but I mean, it's, you're, I think you're being somewhat unfair to, to the TDs who were elected. And let's not forget, Ivan, you know, 12 months ago, we were all told this thing wouldn't last six months, three months and all the rest of it. I'd make a prediction this time next year in your student on Sunday for 12 months from now, this government will still be in place because there is no appetite amongst any of the major political parties for an election. They recognise the fact that there wouldn't be a fundamental change in terms of the makeup of a new doll. So the government have to get on with the job it's doing, notwithstanding the fact it has an agreement with Fianna Fáil. And I have to say this, uh, Michal Martin, especially within his party, has honoured that deal to the letter. I've made this point consistently. Fine Gael need to be generous. They need also not to take Fianna Fáil for granted. We have a new leader who I think is doing a very good job, but a leader who knows the dynamics of the doll. So, I mean, Fine Gael's task is to make sure it can produce legislation which can carry the doll. But equally, amongst the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, they look out and they see other TDs uh, deciding all kinds of issues and they say, you know, we, we're, in, you know, we're TDs in our own right, we're not independents, but we have a right to contribute to this. So I think, despite all of your negativity about new politics and the doll and all the Can rest Can it, it make a hard decision? I think th- there, there are a few big issues this country needs to come to a position on, and one of them we'll talk about later, I know, on the question of pensions. What we need to do is to have agreement between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil on some of those big ticket issues. No matter who's in government, our crowd or Fianna Fáil, come the next election, the issue will be, can there be some agreement on things like pension reform, on the question of third level funding, all of which is hard because you're, you're effectively raising new revenue to pay for something in the long term. Now, I think that's the bigger issue. It doesn't really matter. I mean, Fine Gael government, Fianna government, I mean, that's all of it, that's grand, but the, the stances on the big long-term questions. My, asse- my assessment is come the next election. I actually think, because uh, I think the Rubicon has been crossed by Sinn Féin, I think the big game-changer, I think it was described in the Irish Times by Pat Lee on Saturday, Sinn Féin now want to go into government here. Okay, they, they collapse the government in the north, they won't take their seats in Westminster. Now they've decided that uh, they want to go into government. The real question will be, there are three effective large power blocks in Irish politics, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin. Uh, will Fianna Fáil go into government with Sinn Féin? I predict they won't. I think the great majority of Fianna Fáil people, and especially Michael Martin, do not want to put Sinn Féin into government. Our crowd certainly won't. And I think the only option will be, post the next election, will be a grand coalition between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil. Uh, we offered it in the recent talks. I think Fianna Fáil were right to reject it then, and I wrote it at the time, because they did not want to cede the opposition benches to Sinn Féin. But I think there are other, many other cases in Europe. I mean, the most successful economy of all is led by a, the two biggest parties in Germany, uh, the CDU and the SND party. Uh, it's likely to be the government so at the end of the September. the intrinsic merit of having a five-year stable government with a majority is, is a prize worth paying? Yeah, the problem is we... Um, the dilemma in Irish politics is, and I was there for long enough in the, in the domestic politics, um, you know, we don't do compromise because it's not in the political DNA. Because of our PR system, 
because also of the the kind of the the cheapening of news stories in the media, everyone goes for the jugular. The committee system, looking on at some of the bizarre kind of goings on in some of the committees at the moment, really fundamental questions of. Of, of proper standing orders and and treating people fairly. There is though, that, that, I, that I think I, I, that I think is the big challenge, and I don't. That will take a kind of generation to change in Irish politics. Karen, my central point is having been a member of cabinet that if the government takes a decision on anything, be it big or small, they have to look over their shoulder and say, "Well, can we get through this this through the door?" And if they can't, they have to be hesitant and cautious, and they have to pull back. Whether that's under Kenny or Leo or, or whether it's Michal Martin in a new politics situation, is that not self evident? Well, I think that there's um, an additional constraint coming from the EU and the international level. So, yes, definitely a piece of legislation has to get agreed to cabinet. And then if a government has a majority, it'll just go through the door. It'll go through the Oireachtas because of that majority. But, um, you know, there is a piece in the Mail on Sunday, um, I think it was by John Lee, and he talked about the do-nothing Doyle. And, and, and I think that my point about new politics is that there's no such thing as new politics because there's no difference between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael nor Labour um, and I know the panellists will disagree with me on that and that's fine but I think when you look at people who are on the average industrial wage or lower you see the fact that real wages are stagnant um, that poverty you know we haven't met our national poverty ta- target still 1.5 million but surely in Karen, that reflects in but national that there's a middle Ireland which agrees with the market economy which wants to do the best in terms of social justice that has a sort of general approach to a modern pluralist Ireland, like that isn't you know, the fact that there's those three parties in the centre might be a good thing I think that uh, there's a trend uh, when you look at uh, other countries in Europe. So, And even if you look at the alignment of political groupings left to right in the European Parliament, that in the le- last elections in the European Parliament, a lot yeah. of the centrist parties lost a good number of seats. And the more sort of um, right-wing or left-wing party groupings um, gained in seats. And if you look at, say, for example... But is that le- not just a backlash against austerity? Yeah, but you see, austerity is, is, is seemingly now a permanent feature of... EU politics and um, I mean even just I know we're talking about Brexit later but Jean-Claude Juncker in response to the day after the Brexit results and the referendum so um, it was after the 23rd of June 2016 Juncker went into the European Parliament and some of the left wing uh, MEPs were saying is this not a wake up call for the EU is this not a wake up call in relation to austerity and the so called bailouts Um, No, just let me make this point Brian because this is important and Mm. his response was, and, and a lot of the, the MEPs who are centrist uh, are saying, you know, there's no problem with austerity. Juncker said, well, the consensus within the Commission on austerity has ended. But the fact is, is that unless the EU is actually going to take on some of the reasons why the British people voted to leave, and it is in relation to downward pressure on wages and lowering of living standards, unless they're actually going to do something about that, then um, people are, are going to continue to vote for parties that are not centrist. Can I just make one yes, last okay. point yeah. about this Briefly, in terms yeah. of the European trends? Because even if you look at Syriza in Greece, they had 4% of the vote and then they got 40% of the vote and they were elected on a mandate to try to renegotiate the, the bailout deal. Um, and the pressure then from the EU, basically the EU did some manoeuvring to, to get those people 
out of government. Mm-hmm. Um, you only have to look at what Yanis um, Varoufakis is saying uh, about that. So you have constraints coming from the EU level um, that if the, if the, if the government is, has a mandate to actually do something instead of a do-nothing doyle, you know, and Leo Varadkar, I remember, in 2011 was, was, was now Taoiseach, but at the time when he was campaigning to get into office, he was saying, you know, not one more cent. And, and Enda Kenny then, once he was in office, said, no, I didn't ask for a debt write-down. So the Irish state is constrained financially because of the austerity and because of the bailout. But what is happening at the national level is constrained by the EU level because if there was a okay. party in the Doyle who wanted to St- do something, Stephen, the EU would actually have Stephen, them out of office. Taking up those two points, the middle ground uh, point and, and after the next election, what's going to happen? And, and I, I think it is refreshing what Brian had to say about that. I mean, sh- would, you, would you echo that in terms of if we're faced with a Brexit and other difficulties uh, of, of, you know, having had two years of par- paralysis that we need a strong government? The idea of going beyond new politics and forming a grand coalition, is that something, for someone who's been around the houses yourself, uh, is it something that you personally are open to? Because my best guess is, after the constituency review, we're going to have 160 TDs and Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will be roughly, one will be bigger than the other, one will be 50-something and the other will be 40-something. But the key point is, neither party, even the largest party, will be able to form a government without Sinn Féin or on their own. Surely that reality means you have to look at new options like a grand coalition. Well, I think if the polling and the elections around the world have taught us anything over the last three or four years, it's let's see what happens in the election. Fianna Fáil will have one focus, which will be to return a majority Fianna Fáil government. We agree with Fine Gael on certain things. For example, where you're saying, you know, there's, there's no hard decisions are being made. Both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are signed up to the the, uh, Stability and Growth Pact. We are signed up to the fiscal space. Now, that is a massive change in politics when, when, as you know as an ex-minister, you have interest groups, worthy interest groups all over the country screaming for help on everything all over the country. And you have More people, resources, less tax. Right. And you have people screaming for taxes. Both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael have said the fiscal space is about half a bill. It'll go down to about 300 million. I'm reading is, today, Stephen Kinsley, Colin McCarthy, the message of the whole budget thing, not a lot of room for manoeuvre. Not a lot of room for manoeuvre because yeah. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael are saying we must have a stable uh, fiscal position. Yet that gets dismissed as not a hard decision to make. That's an incredibly difficult decision to make, an incredibly brave decision to make. However, um, Karen is entirely wrong on there being no differences between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael. Fianna Gael are pursuing, I've been in politics, this is my seventh year in politics, Fianna Gael pursue a broadly centre-right view. They emphasise tax cuts. Leo Varadkar was emphasising them again the other day. Uh, Fianna Fáil over the last six or seven years has been pursuing a broadly centre-left approach. And to state that there are no differences between them is, is, is simply, it's, it's kind is of simply incorrect. It's not like it's not like kind of PDs no, but hang on, versus hang on. No, Paul it's not, Murphy. It's, it's not, you know. No, it's not solidarity versus, you know, <laughs> some, some right-wing thing. Yeah, that's, that's, like it's that's, within a margin. It is within a margin. And to your point earlier on, that's probably a good thing. Because let's step back to yes. what's, what's, what's happening. Trump... Uh, how did he get elected? How did Brexit happen? How did Marine Le Pen get 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 so such we such, know such this. anti-austerity and nationalism? No, no, no. Hang okay. on. It's more. It's more than anti-austerity. If you look around the Western world, what is happening is a massive consolidation of wealth in the hands of less and less people, and more and more people in the middle 
are feeling less secure, their pensions are being eroded, their their working conditions are being eroded, um, their their total ownership of the, the wealth of the village is going down and down and down. And what has happened is the consolidation of wealth has now got to such an extreme level. I'll just finish on this. It has got to such an extreme level that more people in the middle are voting for chaos. A vote for Brexit was a vote for chaos. Mm. Le Pen is chaos. Trump is chaos. And so more and more people... So the, the centre, be it okay. the centre-right with Brian or the centre-left with Fianna Fáil or the centre-left with Labour, the centre needs to provide okay. a straight, coherent straight way question. forward. After the next election, if Fianna Fáil are the largest party, would you rather new politics in reverse, where Fine Gael propped you up as a minority government, or would you rather Fianna Fáil leading a Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil coalition government? I think that depends on an awful lot of things. It depends You're on, open-minded about it. Depe- well, sure. I mean, we are in the reverse situation I, I, at the moment. I think it is good to hear. I mean, everyone has to be open-minded about this because we're in a totally different situation. There's just two points I want to make and on this thing, the centre ground. I mean, yeah, there is difference between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, but it is marginal. And I've been around with Pongal and that's the strength, actually, in our country. I, I don't see that as a negative. Um, one of the great reasons why Ireland is in a much better position now, even where we were 20, 30 years ago, is because of that continuity of policy on a whole range of issues from social policy, indeed, especially constitutional change, but also in terms of the economy. So I don't see that as, as, a, as a problem. But if you look at the poll that came out today, Ivan, and I tweeted about this last night in the Sunday Times, and this is one of a number of polls that's showing... The collective Fine Gael Fianna Fáil vote in that poll is nearly 60%, which is 10 points up in the last general election. Last week it was 51%. Yeah, I know. I know, 24, I know. Yeah, I know, but, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I but you're saying it's growing. The point I'm making it's is recovering. what's recovering across Europe, despite what Karen's point, which is very much the language of 2011, 2012, we're in a totally different space now. In the Eurozone, you know, 5 million jobs created in the last uh, three years. The Eurozone is the most fastest growing region of the world. Sorry, in vis the United States of America. Our rate of growth in the in the Eurozone, the 19 member states of the Eurozone, is 2 to 1 vis-a-vis where the United States of America is. So the point I'm making is, for everyone to be saying that uh, the, the Euro, uh, it's all about austerity, it's not. It's actually a growth phase. And the left don't want to hear that. But the truth is that the consolidation has worked in getting Europe to a better place. Now, centre ground, I think, can come back. One of the reasons I was a great fan of Leo Varadkar, I want to see leader of our party, is he actually can articulate the new centre ground politics of European politics. And I think, you know, we needed to move to a new leader, not just the next generation, but two generations from that as a means of articulating that hope in the future European I've project. got to take a break, but I'll, I'll let the listeners have their say. Barton Monan, this doll is useless and people are becoming more and more disengaged with politics all the time. By the time the next election, the turnout will be a record low and it's all the politicians' fault. This do-nothing doll, politicians gone on their long summer holidays. The electorate should not tolerate this no- nonsense in the modern era. Our dole is nothing more than a home for the wildered. My panel this morning, Dr. Karen Devine of DCU, MEP Brian Hayes, and maybe coming back to the dole, although he denies it, and TD Stephen Donnelly, who's currently with Fianna Fáil. Now, um, Brexit is what we want to talk about. It's their mastermind topic of expertise, all of these guys. So, uh, let's start, because round two of the formal talks between the EU and London uh, recommence next week. Uh, the first one was really a getting-to-know session. But in the last hour, Tony Blair, the former Labour Prime Minister, has been speaking to Ridge on Sunday on Sky News about Brexit. I think it's possible now that Brexit doesn't happen. I think it's absolutely necessary that it doesn't happen because I think every day is bringing us fresh evidence that it's doing us damage economically, certainly doing us damage politically. And 
I think public opinion is moving on it. Look, this time last year, we were the fastest growing economy in the G7. We're now the slowest. Um, our savings ratio is at the lowest for 50 years. The investment community internationally has now gone really negative on us. Our currency is down 10, 12 percent. Um, investment in the motor car industry, for example, is down 30 percent. Living standards are stagnating. I mean, this is causing us real damage. That's beyond doubt. So the question is, in circumstances where the party leadership in both main parties is still committed to Brexit, how, do, how does it happen? And I think it happens if there is a strong movement for change out in the country that starts to impact on MPs. And you know how that happens, second referendum, votes in Parliament and so on, I think that, in a sense, you get to that later. The question is, can you get a clear sense from the people in the country that the will that they expressed last June is, is shifting? Tony Blair speaking common sense, I would have thought, from a British perspective. Karen, the fascinating thing for me a year on is, because we've had all the analysis of, you know, Michael O'Leary's been in the studio saying the planes will stop because they won't accept ECJ judgments, the impact on energy, fisheries, we could go on and on and on. The fascinating thing is, what do you think the Brits want? What is their Brexit strategy, given the election, given the weakness of May? And, you know, I've, I've, I've chaired conferences where British speakers spoke, you know, and it could be the minutiae, the food industry. And you know what? They say, we've been to Whitehall and we don't know, we don't have a clue beyond concepts what the position is. What do you think is the progress on a, a, a detailed British position? I think that there is a a tension between the idea of the soft and the hard Brexit. So the hard Brexit is that you leave the EU entirely and that you leave the the, um, European economic area, which is basically a free trade area where you have the four freedoms, goods, services, people, capital. Um, The background to this, and it's interesting that Tony Blair cited, you know, standards of living basically stagnating um, as a reason for stopping Brexit, because... Um, the living standards have been stagnant pre predating the financial crisis um, and one of the issues is the free movement of people that's a kind of a hard line for the, the Tory government and it was part of David Cameron's one of, in his letter like before the, the, the referendum he was trying to get some concessions from the EU on that the EU should have given him concessions on that there's a number of reasons why first of all this notion that's water under the bridge I mean like that's no, over but I mean, we now have Brexit. Want, what wants, do you think? What he, do you think? Right. In terms of, in terms of, you know, Boris says, go whistle for your money. In terms of, some people are saying, well, we'll go for the EEA Norway solution. Do you think there exists in the British government, uh, cabinet, or in Westminster, a, 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 a an emerging viewpoint of what Britain wants? Yeah, look, I think Theresa May, I believe her when she says Brexit is Brexit, and she's talking about a hard Brexit. For me, if the EU is willing to give a concession on the free movement of workers, of people, I think that the UK would want to stay within the EEA, the the, the free trade zone, the European Economic Area, have a kind of a Norway uh, option, because it's not in the EU's interest and it's not in the UK's interest to leave that. However, um, the problem is, is that the, the EU 
I think well, I, I call it EU evangelism. Okay, so this is no um, slight on anyone who, who's evangelist. I say more power to you. But I'm talking about EU evangelism. And um, interestingly, Ray Bassett kind of touches on this notion in, in his article on the Sunday Business Post. In that there is from from Jean Claude Juncker's perspective, how he is approaching the negotiations with Brexit is that you've decided to leave the EU. This is a personal insult to us. We are personally injured by this. We are outraged by this. They're taking it very emotionally. He actually said in the European Parliament, this is not a time for reason over emotion. Okay, And he, what he's saying is no, par- no third party state outside the EU can have the same benefits as one in the EU. So, you know, as a lecturer in international relations, we talk about when states enter negotiations, the idea of relative gains and absolute gains and zero sum games. And basically, the EU's position is we want to make sure the UK gets absolutely no benefit whatsoever, even if it actually is negative for us. So they're going for a zero sum sort of absolute gains. Okay. They don't don't want the UK to benefit from this. That's an irrational negotiating position that will ultimately end in tears. Okay, Brian, uh, both Blair and Karen alluded to there is if Britain got a deal on migration and you know how anti-immigrant they are, that they might then go for the softer EEA uh, trade solution. Do you think that's a runner? Well, um, John Bruton dismissed it yesterday. Yeah, well, I don't agree with John on this. I think, you know, if you... The emotional argument that comes from the hard left as much as it comes from the pro-European element. But the emotional argument is there's no possibility that we can give in on some of the four freedoms. Um, When we get to the really hard substantive deal that will have to be constructed, I wrote an article last week in the Business Post where I said that we could end up with them half in, half out. I mean, I think they're going to be outside the European Union as we know it, but they could ultimately end up in an EA-type arrangement bit like Norway or Switzerland, if a specialised deal was done for them. Why is that so important? Because the financing of the European Union is interdependent with the City of London and vice versa. 40% of all our loans across the 27 member states originate in some shape or form in the City of London. And I think the concern is, and I wouldn't be too worried about Karen's comments about Jean-Claude Juncker. He says lots of very interesting things. It depends on the time of the day he says it. I'd be much more concerned with people like Michel Barnier and the serious people around the negotiations and there are very serious people who understand that this whole, if there is to be a rupture, some kind of cliff edge, it could actually be a new Lehman Brothers. It could be a systemic threat to the financial security that we've had to work so hard to put in place in the last eight, nine years. So there's that, there's that sense of realism around the place. So I don't think you can dismiss anything. But I think the really important thing that Blair was saying yesterday was, you know, we should be open to look at every possibility. I mean, the British political system is still in crisis. Garrett wrote this speech years ago in the Dimbleby lecture, I think the 1970s spoke about, you know, the kaleidoscope has been shaken. It's exactly like that right now in British politics. No one knows the outcome. You have a majority of Labour MPs who are pro-European, the hard left rump of the leadership uh, of uh, John MacDonald and Corbyn vehemently, vehemently against that. Um, I mean, it was interesting, Chukwamun had a motion 
last week in the House of Commons on remaining in the single market. He just got a, about 100 members. So clearly there is, you know, the Tory party is split down the middle, uh, as split as it was at the time of the Corn Laws. So if you look at British politics, we're not dealing with a stable partner here. The, what, was, what they find astonishing to believe the Brits is this idea that Europe is actually still together as okay. the race has started. Normally their policy is divide and conquer. They realise that from Hungary to Ireland, we still have a negotiating position. They're the people who've changed. And I think we, it will take at least a year, Ivan, before we can understand uh, where exactly is the negotiation going to go. Uh, Stephen, um, the obviously fluid situation in Britain. What's your sense of where that will, will end up in terms of could there be a migration for trade deal? And secondly, and we referred to Ray Bassett today, the interesting thing, he makes the point, and I spoke to Bertie about this and so on, that there's a huge reception in London for a bilateral deal. So all the minutiae of the neighbour issues, be it cross-border, be it east-west and so on, the minutiae of energy transport, fisheries, all that kind of good stuff, and veterinary and even things like the National Treatment Purchase Fund, you know, cross-border healthcare facilities, which are really practical stuff. What about a bilateral approach? So two questions mm-hmm. there. The latter, bilateral, and where do you think the Brits will end up? It's hard to know where the Brits are going to end up, where we want them to end up, because ultimately our job is to protect Ireland through this and seize any opportunities, and obviously as members of the EU, but first and foremost on on Ireland. We need them in the same type of deal that Norway has, which is a face-saving exercise all round. It says, look, you have formally left the European Union. Please come back when you're ready, but you have formally left, but you're staying in the single market. Ideally, we would keep them in the customs union, which Norway is out of, because once they're out of the customs union, it causes real problems in terms of not having a border around the six counties, no matter what anyone says about frictionless and visible borders. So what we need to be doing and what our government and our parliament, uh, what we all need to be doing is trying to create the space for a for a face saving solution as close to the UK staying in the EU as possible. Um, were the EU to Should come... Should we act as a go-between? In that well, we... I mean, yes, yes, yes and no, right? Yes and no. So we have to or be seen... yes and no me. Well, <laughs> what it means is that we have to be seen very clearly and unambiguously by the other EU 26 to be one of the EU 27. However, we are uniquely positioned. A, we are uniquely affected and B, we have a uniquely close relationship okay. with, with the okay. UK, yeah. right? So we have to box clever. And in fairness to this government, I've been very critical on their domestic response to Brexit, but I will say on the diplomatic front, I think the government and our diplomats have done a good job. I think Brexit is front and centre. Now, should we have, your second question is, should we have a bilateral agreement with... On the minutiae, memorandum that we could present to Barnier and say look, on little specific things that are not top line EU politics, we've sorted out this. Yeah, absolutely we should. Lurries on boats. We we should, but with a caveat that we have to do it with the agreement of the EU27, right? So any conversations I've had with Barnier's team or with commission officials is, look, we understand Ireland is exposed. We understand Northern Ireland is a very tricky issue. We understand this is very delicate for you folks. Um, but we're not going to solve it for you. So come to us with solutions. Now, obviously, anything that is agreed between Ireland and the UK as a solution can be then submitted to the negotiations. However, you can't just go off unilaterally and open formal government talks because that will will understandably annoy the other EU26. So what we would like to see, what I would like to see, what Fianna Fáil would like to see, is a push from the government to say to the EU, look, there are 
Anglo-Irish or UK-Irish issues, we need to have formal talks with them. They are non-binding, but we need to find solutions, just like you say, Ivan, and then we present a paper or a series of papers to the negotiations. There is an open-door policy in in the negotiating team and across the Commission about the really, really tricky issues that involve Ireland, North and South, and especially our supply line issues across the UK. They know that. the, The dilemma is, at the moment, they're still have not got from the British any sense of an engagement on those particular range of issues. And the other point I want to make is this, and this is the, the, that, that Ray Bassett constantly goes on, he talks about traditional patterns. But I, I think he's kind of not understanding that our, the Irish economy today is a totally different animal to the Irish economy in the 1970s and 80s. It is a much more internationalised economy. We have three and a half times as much trade to the 26 member states of the European Union in the totality of our goods and services than we have to the UK. We're very exposed in agri- agri-foods, we're very exposed in supply lines, but there's very, there's very little north-south trade, if the truth be told. The real new dynamic Irish economy is an economy that's been built on a stable euro. And we've got to make sure that into the future, that's understood in the negotiations as well. We have huge amounts to lose. And my final, final point is this. I mean, the, the real argument here is this idea that we're the only country affected. I mean, I spoke to colleagues in Bavaria. They're BMW people. There are 40,000 people working in BMW factories there. They've skin in the game as the, uh, on this as well. The Dutch uh, have skin in the game. Lots of countries have skin in the game. Lots of countries have skin in the game. Okay, because I'll give you a final you, you mentioned that, um, you know, the, the, the Eurozone and, and stability and so forth. But Ireland does less than one third of its trade with Eurozone states. Okay, so and and yet we're in a, in a common currency where not in goods we, and services. we can't yeah, that's control. Not true. We can't control our interest rates. That's not true. Um, we can't basically manipulate what is that say, just on goods though? Britain has in relation to being able to um, dig themselves out of a, an economic situation. You favour a bilateral Ireland? I actually want us to go further. I actually am surprised that there isn't an Irish person on the negotiating team on the EU side. Um, I also think that Ireland should be um, more subversive than it is. I think that we actually should be having negotiations with the British because... But we're the best Germans in the class. You uh, know Well, this. this is the problem and this is do why want, I talk you, about you evangelism. Do you want an irrexible? Brian is the very best. Here's the thing. So what the, what was absolutely mind-blowing, right, at the time was that Enda Kenny was like, no, we're on the side of the 26. When actually, and, 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 and I'm glad Stephen Donnelly, because you're the first politician I've heard say this, is that we have to think of Ireland's interests first and then the but EU can 26. Can I just say... Can no, I, hang on yeah, a second. You're, you're being very propagandist, because, though. No, I'm political. not at all. So, I'm, I'm you were never actually. No, but I'm a politician. No, She's an academic. That's the difference. No, what I want to say about Irexit, because what Ray Bassett was told that it's unpatriotic, okay. right, for Irish um, civil well, you got servants... Me well, I didn't say that. I just said his arguments are wrong. Unpatriotic for Irish civil servants to not be evangelists. Can I just say, I mean... It's a serious mistake I welcome the fact that Ray Bassett is every Sunday in the Sunday Business Post. He has a particular view Sorry, and, and, we, and it is yeah <laughs> all I'm saying is that those of us who want to remain in okay. the Eurozone system and I believe we are the majority equally have a right to have our views heard okay. in public that's all I'm saying my panel is Stephen Donnelly Brian Hayes and Karen Devine well we had the summer economic statement which sets the context for budget 2018 uh, this week and both that and uh, Leo Vradker's interviews including one of the Sunday Independent Day 
completely failed to address what I was hoping that a former Minister for Social Protection would address, which is our looming pensions crisis. I won't go through all the reports that have been published since '05 with successive governments saying that basically two-thirds of people working in the private sector, which includes self-employed people of one and a half million people, have no pension provision beyond the old age pension. And for those who don't know, that's 12,391, which is 27% of the national uh, average wage. So, you've got all these millennials out there. They actually are, are a, a generation of renters. So, a mortgage is actually a retirement savings scheme. So, they're going to have to pay rent in their retirement. A girl born this very day, in mid-July 2017, has a 50% chance of living to be 100. I won't go through all the statistics of how we have longer life expectancy and how the ratio of workers to retirees is going to reduce over the next period between now and 2036 from 5 to 1 to 2 to 1. Uh, less people paying to keep more going. We also have the unfunded situation, public service pensions, circa that's doctors and nurses and teachers and so on, about 100 billion, and the cost of the old age pension for uh, 300 billion on top of that. So we have no money set aside. Rainy day fund is a, a drop in the ocean. C- could I put it to you that, that this is an absolute inevitable disaster of, repart- uh, of retirement poverty, Stephen? That you're going to have repartment, uh, retirement apartheid insofar as the 380,000 people in the public sector have still defined benefit pensions. Mm-hmm. So this is a real problem for private sector people. And that now is the time, uniquely, because the USC, which brings in four billion, which is taken out of pay pockets, is not, you know, going to be abolished. And and Leo Varadkar was very hot on this topic before he became teacher. Take a listen to what he said to me in this studio about it. What I'm proposing that we do uh, is that we follow the example that's been done in other countries, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, for example, to a lesser extent Britain. And what we do is we automatically enrol everyone uh, into a pension scheme, into a personal retirement account, which they own, they control. Um, they put in a euro, their employer matches it with a euro and using either tax relief or the SSIA type arrangement, the government puts in a euro. Uh, and what you do obviously is you start off very low, you start with kind of 1% a year, but over time you phase it up uh, to the kind of figures you're talking about. And is there an opt-out for employers there's, and employees? There's an opt-out for the employee obviously. Uh, but what we found in in Britain, for example, is people don't opt out. You know, everyone fundamentally yeah. understands the way pensions work. You the rainy to, day, the long term. Yeah, well, first of all, you have to pay into it. That's, yeah. you know, nobody, nobody, nobody's going to give you a free okay. pension. How quickly, you have to how quickly could this be up and running as a departmental, operational, administrative level? Yeah, well, it's important to get it right, of course. Uh, so what we need is legislation. We need IT systems and financial systems. And I believe we can have the first payments uh, going into those accounts by 2021. Will it happen, Stephen? Yeah, something like that needs to happen. I don't have the detail to know if a euro, a euro, a euro is the right way to go. One third, one third, one third. Yeah, but certainly an opt-out pension. We, you know, it's a success or a finding of behavioural economics over the last few years. It's a bit like the donor cards. Uh, you still have full freedom, so it's not sort of nanny state stuff. But it just says, look, you know, this is the right thing to do. We're not going to make you have to go through the rigmarole of setting it up. We've put you into it, and if you don't want to be in it, you can be out of it. Um, 
Two things. On the good news side, this is because of good news, right? This is because people are living much longer than they used to live. And so the the problem we're having to, to deal with is how do we make sure people can, you know, have a decent life in retirement? The bad news, as you referenced, is right now there's about 5.3 workers to every pensioner. And by 2060, there'll be two. And so where I would disagree with you, Ivan, is to saying that this that there will be apartheid, say, between private and public sector. Actually, and I was making this point to some of my Fianna Fáil colleagues in the last few weeks, be you a, a teacher, a TD, a guard, a soldier or anything else with a private sector, pen, uh, public sector pension, under no circumstances right now is that pension guaranteed. You can have a piece of paper that says, but sure, the state owes me this money. And the state in 2060, unless we sort this out, will say, yeah, but there's no one to pay you. Because as, as everybody knows, public sector pensions are non-funded in that they come from the taxes we pay today. And so what we've got to start looking at is a transition to a funded system. Now, it takes decades to do it because the the amounts of money involved are are astronomical. Um, But at two workers to every pensioner, I can tell you right now, if nothing is done, public sector pensioners won't be getting their full public sector pension because there'll be no money. And we certainly won't be borrowing more and more and more to do it. So an opt-out is a good idea. Fianna Fáil um, but, has... But, but Stephen, there's a very specific issue. George Osborne introduced a national auto-enrolment pension scheme mm. uh, and very few people opted out of it. So mm. if you change job, you keep paying in. We need to do that, to deduct at source, to set it up. And it requires, as Leo said, legislation. Mm. Will Fianna Fáil support that? Because there will be people, small employers, and saying we can't afford this and so on, but it has to be done. Fianna Fáil is very open to it, and what we need to see is the detailed proposal. I have had long conversations with Leo Franker about this. When he was Social uh, Welfare Minister, he spoke on this programme and lots of other programmes about this. He passionately believes about doing something. I think you're going to see some action from him. No mention uh, of it lately. Well, well he, he spoke about it very passionately in the course of our leadership campaign because he recognises that there is an apartheid position between the public and private sector on this. There's no, no matter what way you look at it, uh, in a circumstance where 60% of people on the private sector side do not have recourse to a private sector pension. We need to do three things. Auto enrolment took the Brits four years to put in place. This is not easy because every business, big and small, micro SME, the guy who employs two guys has to put this thing in place. But we need to have that first and foremost. Secondly, I actually think his idea, uh, which both Pascal and himself committed to this week, of b- actually merging PRS, a, PRS, PRSI and USE together gives the opportunity long term of allowing people to make more contributions so that they will have something over and above what we describe as the old age contributing pension. And I think that's a good thing long term. And the third point is this. The sooner we get to this thing, the better. We need to save full stop right the way across, not just the rainy day fund. Like, I mean, the point was, one of the best things Charlie McCreevy did, actually, was the National Pension Reserve Fund. He put aside 1% of GDP on an annualised basis. This country would have been in a 10 times worse position had we not got that money to put into the banks at the time of the crash. Uh, and I know the big debate around that. But we need to get back to the principle of a rainy day fund. I was delighted to see both Leo and Pascu this week committing themselves to that again. Yes, it's not the one billion, it's half of a billion. But whatever it is, that's the thing we need to do. Too often, uh, public sector pensions have been funded from current expenditure, Stephen said. And I think that's not a tenable position into the future. Leo's a month in office. Maybe I missed it, and I'm reasonably observant, but not the most. Uh, Has he said anything about this? Like in his interviews... With Dave McCullough and with Kevin Doyle, I haven't heard one mention he, of it. The summer statement, it. there wasn't one mention of it. Like, as a guy who, you know, wrote 
uh, columns yeah. in the examiner saying one of the fundamental changes I'm going to make is yeah. deal with this intergenerational poverty issue because yeah, people of my well, age I, I and older have pensions. Just because he hasn't said it in the last four weeks uh, I th- I'd leave room for him to say it over the course of the next four weeks or eight weeks. What I'm saying is this. He's very well attuned to this issue. Like, the other thing in the, in, in, I, I got a flight back from Brussels the other day and two people came up to me in the airport and said to me, I was just thinking, uh, how much they supported what Radcliffe had to say in the campaign and the whole question of getting up early in the morning. There's a whole, majority of people out there, quiet people going about their work, who you know, okay. don't turn up to things, who, who are who are really feel that at last we have someone who articulates their concern that they have to give such an amount of income to the taxman okay. every single year and they have very little show to it. I think he's committed to change that. Karen, do you agree that this is a, a hugely important national issue and secondly, do you think they'll actually grasp the nettle? Yes, it is very important. Um, no, I don't think they'll grasp the nettle. Um, I know uh, Brian Hayes was saying that you know GDP growth is is fantastic or starting to climb in in the euro area um, it, within the EU, but the austerity merit measures are still in place for people. So when we talk about pensions, though, when we talk about pensions, and you know, I, I know Ivan, in your article, um, you wrote that you said that there's 430,000 public sectors who are okay. Well, actually, I believe I agree with Stephen when. It gets to the point of retirement, the government will turn around and just say, sorry, we've no money. But public servants actually pay a pension levy. Like, that hasn't gone. So all of these kind of measures are in place in relation to some like public sector. Secondly, like people are contributing an awful lot in terms of direct taxation and indirect taxation. You know, when you're saying like there won't be any money at the end of it, like we're spending 40, 50, 40 years of our working lives paying in. So it's not that we're expecting free money at the end of it. We're actually paying in. So it's not necessarily a benefit in that respect. And finally, in relation to the girl who might be born um, this month in Ireland and living until 100, there's no doubt... 50% chance. There's no doubt that she'll probably be working until she's 70. Um, and that's how things are going to go. Um, and finally, about apartheid, I mean, yes, I, I actually really feel for my students who are trying to face into getting a job and trying to get um, a deposit together for a mortgage, etc. But there's also a generation of, of mortgage apartheid because anyone who bought in the 2000s is saddled still with potential negative equity mortgage, still struggling to try to make those mortgage payments, still struggling struggling to pay bills. So the idea of, of somebody having money left over to put into a pension just belies the reality of people's lives today, but, of the ordinary average I mean, person. No matter what way you look at it, there are hard options that have to be faced. Anytime you're taking more money from people to put into a pension fund, employer, employee, state, whatever there has to be a measure of political agreement around that because it's unpopular. Well, that- and and the point I'm making is, if we can just make the point, Karen, mm. the point I'm making is, this is one issue, no matter who's in government, you know, the Communist Party of Ireland, Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin, whoever, will have to have an agreed position on, and we stick to that position on, irrespective of who's to government. And that requires uh, the Taoiseach, the leader of Fianna Fáil, and other sensible political parties who want to see changes against just talk come to some agreement. That's why some kind of cross-party agreement on pensions is crucial. I'll give Stephen the final word. I just think on this, look, I, I do agree with Brian on this. If we don't sort this out, it will make the banking crisis look like a fond picnic in our memory. If we don't sort this out, you are going to have a vast number of people approaching pension age or in retirement, in poverty, with absolutely no way of getting out of it, right? Now, 
the solution to this causes short-term pain for individuals, for the exchequer and for employers. It does. So this is one of these things where we've got to have as much political agreement as possible and, and have an honest conversation with people and put the figures out there and say, look, here's the choice. So take Karen students or anyone working, quite frankly, and say, you may not want to put 12.5% of your wage into your pension at 21 years of age. We understand you have other obligations, as does anyone trying to put kids through school or whatever it is. But if you don't, you are going to live in poverty when you retire. And we have to have an honest conversation well, about that. We're completely over time. Uh, just leave the final word to text D in Dublin. It's not apartheid between public and private. It's between those born before or after 1970. A lot of truth in that. My thanks to Fianna Fáil spokesman on Brexit, Stephen Donnelly, TD, MEP in Brussels, Brian Hayes, and Dr. Karen Devine, lecturer in EU politics and international relations at DCU. Yates on Sunday on News Talk. Brought to you by SSE Airtricity Business Energy. Proud to power businesses all over Ireland. Energy at work for you.